0: Um, so, let, let me start with a, a throwaway part of the sermon, okay? So, I, uh, when I, uh, a number of years ago, my dad bought himself a drone, okay? So, like, of course, nothing cool when I was a kid. He got cool stuff when I was out of the house and everything else, but he bought a drone. My dad's cheap, so it wasn't a very good one, and he's of the generation that didn't grow up with, like, video game controllers in their hands. So, he's a little, like clumsy with it. And so he's showing us at Thanksgiving with my brothers-in-law and and everyone um, how how cool his drone is. And he flies it up, 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 and into a 100-foot-tall oak tree over the house, okay? So his new drone is just sitting there and so we're going to get this thing down. So we start with baseballs, okay? And you're trying to throw a baseball to get the thing down. And Of course, we'll catch it when it falls. It's not, you know. And, um, and so we couldn't get down with the baseball. Not like, obviously, I was hitting it every time. You have a good, a good uh, uh, aim for a pastor, obviously. Um, but the, there just wasn't the weight for it. So we moved on to footballs. And so we're throwing footballs up, trying to get this thing out of the tree, and, um, and again, just not happening. So we graduated then to the baseball bat, okay? And, uh, and so then we're throwing, like, just hucking the baseball bat up there, and eventually the baseball bat was indeed the thing that got the drone down and it flew afterwards it 's amazing um, that that went, but it was that, it was that increasing like okay let's let 's start here okay let 's go more intense all right let 's just let 's just throw the bats up there you know you 're just getting everything and I feel like that 's the journey as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes together that 's sort of like the type of escalation that he has um, for us is he 's starting out like hey i 'm going to try to figure out the meaning of life here, and then as we go through the book he 's like, okay, tried this, tried this, try this, and it just escalates until he 's getting into some really heavy stuff to try to get into like How do we actually like wring some sort of meaning um, in in life and happiness out of the life that we're living? And so he's going to take us on that journey. Last week, um, Nathan took us through the the path of wisdom, where he's going wisdom, philosophy, knowledge. Let's figure life out, and we'll find meaning that way. And he tries it, but comes up empty. This time, he tries the path of pleasure. And so he's going to go all in on this. So here's how he starts. This is in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. If you want to open your Bible, or I'll put it on the screen for you. He starts here. I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. So I I love the invitation, right? This is like the most inviting passage in the entire Bible, right? Like, come on. I'm going to test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. You're like, all right. I can get behind this. But then he gives us the conclusion. But it was vanity. And remember, the the Hebrew word is havel. It means uh, means, uh, something that's fading, fleeting, um, something that's an enigma. It's like a mystery. It won't satisfy. You can't quite tease out the meaning. And so I'm going to try pleasure. And what he does is we're going to see is he's not dipping his toes into the pool of pleasure to see like maybe a little bit of enjoyment will get me through life. No, he he just cannonballs into this thing. And he's like, I'm going to try it all to an extent that no one has ever tried before. And I'm going to figure out how to get Pleasure out of life, okay. And remember, when he does this, he's he's looking uh, beneath the sun. So remember, we we started in chapter one. He starts talking about how he's um, looking at life under the sun. So if the sun is up here, and you're kind of shielding your eyes and you're looking around at what's happening, he's sort of doing that, seeing what's happening on this earth, not taking God into consideration, but just kind of how can I figure out things on this earth? So under the sun, just every bit of pleasure that I can wring out of this whole thing, and he already tells us he finds it to be enigmatic, unfulfilling. Um, And so he's going to go on these stages now of pursuing it. So I've labeled these stages in their kind of increase as they go. The first stage is he tries the comedy tour, okay? And I'll explain kind of what that looks like. But the first couple of verses here, two and three. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine wine. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So here's where he starts, and he's going to start with, like, laughter, with comedy. Like, maybe I can find some meaning in that, and he, he just doesn't tell a few jokes. He's like, it's like going, like, if you were to, like, tour with Dave Chappelle or somebody else that you find funny, like... It's like, let's go all in. And the whole thing, the jokes, the laughter, uh, the the alcohol, like everything that would be part of this, let's just throw ourselves into that version of pleasure. So he's going to test it and he's going to see, like, is this going to work? Is this going to fulfill? But he says right off the bat, I tried laughter, and I'm like, yeah, it's, it's mad. It's insane. It's crazy. It doesn't, it doesn't, like, fulfill. It doesn't last. It doesn't, you know, um, bring anything. And I, this is a little bit disappointing for me, okay, because I, I, I like to joke around. I like comedians. I like laughter. I do find a lot of joy and fulfillment in laughing with people that I love. Um, but what he's doing is he's testing, can this hold its weight on its own? If, if I follow this all in, if I just give myself over to this to the fullest extent, could it, could it satisfy? Could it happen? Um, I think of the uh, some of the funniest people that have ever lived, right? And you think like, maybe these comedians are like, they have to be the happiest people in the world, right? And they're literally laughing all the time. And they're making everybody, uh, the rest of us are like, you're amazing, you make me laugh. And just all the time surrounded by laughter. But then, you know, we had that shocking thing a number of years ago with Robin Williams. And I don't know how that hits you, right? But it's this kind of incongruity of like, But Robin Williams was happy. Like, I never saw him without a smile on his face, without laughter coming out of him. But you realize, like, no, that in itself is not fulfilling. It's good. Laughter is amazing. But in itself, it can't ever, like, solve everything for a person. And so all these people um, trying to laugh and enjoy fun and all this kind of stuff, it doesn't get there. And he says uh, says about uh, the next section in verse 3 here, I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine. And he basically tries that route, and this is one of those, like, boy, I really wish this wasn't in the Bible, you know? Like, maybe, maybe the path of alcohol like, could work out for us. Like, let's give us something. Like, give us, like, our, our daily glass of wine or something. But he's like, no, I, I threw myself into this, I tried it, and this didn't fulfill as well, okay? Now, when we mention something like... Um, like alcohol, here's the thing. You do a search in the Bible for alcohol. I, I, like I did this and you look through like wine and, and strong drinks and things like that. And um, I was surprised years ago to find that overwhelmingly when the Bible talks about alcohol, it is a, a good thing. It's like a sign of blessing. It's like a sign of the Lord's favor, right? So think of Jesus going to a um, wedding, and the first thing that he does at this wedding, they, they run out of, of wine, and so he makes wine out of water, right? It's a, it's a sign of blessing. It's a sign of abundance. It's a sign of God's favor, so it's a good thing. And yet, throughout Scripture, there's these warnings about the drunkenness that comes, right? Like, like if, you're, if you're living in this debauchery, if you're living in this drunken state, that's not going to fulfill. You're, we're warned against that throughout. And so there's this reminder now uh, where he says, okay, I'm going to dive into this. And he says, he says like, I'm going to search how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly. I almost see that like as two approaches to alcohol. Okay, so there's like the wisdom approach, like temperance, right? A glass of wine with dinner, um, you know, a glass of bourbon at the end of the day. Let's go like the temperate, uh, mature, wise approach to it. Or, laying hold of folly, like, I'm just going to go all in, man. All bets are off, and I'm just going to dive into this. And I, I dare say, we've tried both, right? In this room, we definitely have represented both attempts, okay? So there's the wise, prudent drinkers amongst us that are like, yeah, no, this is good. Nothing wrong with a glass of bourbon at the end of the day. And let me just say, that wasn't sarcastic. This is me saying it. Nothing wrong with a glass of bourbon at the end of the day. That's fine. It's good. It's a sign of the Lord's favor. It's a blessing from God, right? So, but what Solomon's going to tell us is that doesn't end your search for meaning. This is not the good thing in itself. This can be a gift. It can be a blessing. um, But this is not the thing on which you can stake your hopes and your dreams and your meaning and your happiness. Like, it does not hold it. It's too frail to support the weight of that. On the other side, right, many of us in this room have done this whole cannonball into the world of alcohol approach, right? To the point where you're like just full blown and you're hiding it from your spouse and you need, like it's not just uh, drink at the end of a hard day because every day ends up becoming a hard day and you need a couple and you need a few and you get to the point where it's like, man, this is like I have invested so much of myself in this and it's not holding me up. It is pulling me down and there's this dark, deep pit under the whole thing. And so regardless of which side you're on, we need this warning. The, things like alcohol, blessings from the Lord, but they are not big enough um, to hold us. So I, w- I went through um, a Jack Kerouac phase a number of years ago, as, as one does, of course. I'm sure you've all been there too. He's one of the great American authors, and um, he, like his whole thing, I, I find it fascinating. His most famous book is On the Road, and he's just like one of the beatnik uh, type people, and he's just traveling, hitchhiking, uh, drinking, having fun. It's like finding some life, some meaning away from the... the um, insincere things in life, and let's just dive in and enjoy what's right there in front of us. Um, he has this, this uh, later book called Big Sur, where he's in San Francisco, and he's just like had it with this lifestyle. It's just, it's killing him, and he knows that it is, and so he goes down to Big Sur to try to um, escape uh, from the city life and try to find meaning out in the woods, and in that, he has these, these couple of passages on alcohol that I feel like are really... Um, I feel like the preacher in Ecclesiastes would say these things. So um, I'm just going to say right off the bat, I know how to read. Jack Kerouac is famous for, uh, like, misusing grammar, okay? So if it sounds off, it's him, not me, all right? And it's art, okay? So he says, any drinker knows how the process works. The first day you get drunk is okay. The morning after means a big head, but so you can kill that easy with a few more drinks and a meal. But if you pass up on the meal and go on to another night's drunk and wake up to keep the toot going and continue on to the fourth day, there'll come a day when the drinks won't take effect because you're chemically overloaded and you'll have to sleep it off but can't sleep anymore because it was alcohol itself that made you sleep those last five nights. So delirium sets in. Sleeplessness, sweats, trembling, groaning, feeling of weakness, where your arms and numb are, u- arms are numb and useless, nightmares. A little later on, he goes into this parting rage. This one's even longer, so just buckle your seatbelt. All that night, by lamplight, we sing and yell songs, which is okay, but in the morning, the bottle is gone, and I wake up with the final horrors again. I can hear myself whining, why does God torture me? But anybody who's never had delirium tremens, even in the early stages, may not understand that it's not so much a physical pain, but a mental anguish indescribable to those ignorant people who don't drink and accuse drinkers of your responsibility. The mental anguish is so intense that you feel you have betrayed your very birth. The efforts, nay, the birth pangs of your mother when she bore you and delivered you to the world. You betrayed every effort your father ever made to feed you and raise you and make you strong, and my God, even educate you for life. You feel a guilt so deep. You, uh, you identify yourself with the devil, and God seems far away, abandoning you to your sick silliness. You feel sick in the greatest sense of the word, breathing without believing in it. Sick, 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 your soul groans. In short, that very disgusting and well known hideousness everybody knows who's walked past a city street drunk. People say, Oh, well, he's drunk and happy. Let him sleep it off. The poor drunkard is crying. He'll want to bury his face in his hands and moan for mercy, and he knows there is none. Not only because he doesn't deserve it, but there's no such thing, anyways. Because he looks up at the blue sky, and there's nothing there but empty space making a big face at him. He looks at the world. It's, uh, it's big red eyes like his own eyes. He may see the earth move, but there's no significance of any particular kind to attach to that. There's a twisted feeling of no more, never again. Ah, the ache of remorse sinks in as though somebody was pushing it in from above. The only thing to do is turn over and lie face down and weep. So with that, I have fulfilled a dream of reading Jack Kerouac in a church service. So there it is. Um, But I just, I was reading, I was just like, this is so fitting, right? This is really what the preacher is saying, right? Like you go and you want to find, but like you realize how empty the whole thing is. And some of you in this room like know exactly what he's talking about. You know those feelings, you know where it leads. And so if you're over here in the full AA path, right? It's like, no, alcohol does not give meaning to my life, right? But those of us that are kind of over here and we're like, yeah, this is, this is good. This is great. Keep in mind, it is a blessing from the Lord, right? But it, it is not strong enough to hold our hopes and our dreams. It will not get us there. And so Solomon, the, the preacher, is just going through all of these things and he's just saying, look, none of it is ever going to hold up. None of it is ever going to last. None of it is ever going to give us the meaning that we need. Believe me, I've tried it and this is what I've found. He, he says too in, the, in that verse 4, like kind of towards the end of it there, he says, Um, sorry, in verse three, he he also sought how to lay hold on folly. I see this as kind of the idea of folly. It's like not the wisdom approach, but kind of the the nonconformist, right? Let me do what's unconventional. Let me do something different. And he's like, but no, it's still not satisfying. It's still not giving me what I want. And so here we come to the end of the little comedy tour. This is stage one. And he's tried laughing. He's tried drinking. He's tried the party scene. He's like, it's not giving me what I need. So he moves on. This one might sting a little bit more. He moves on to the better homes and gardens phase, okay? (laughs) And so here he is in verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. All right, so here is what he's trying, the building project phase. So how many hours of HGTV did you guys watch this week, right? And every station, every Netflix, all that is getting in on the whole thing and it is like, I I remember the first time that I saw like there's a show about fixing up your home. I didn't own a home. I had no thought of that and it was like, this is so stupid. And then you're like five hours in you're like, oh my gosh, why are there not more episodes of this? There's something about it that just like draws. It's like, oh my gosh, yes. Fix up that house. Yeah, put shiplap over there. That's going to be amazing, right? We just get so excited and we dream about how like what our space could be like, and you try to find meaning through all that, and here is uh, the preacher, and he's saying like, yes, I have dived into all this. I built these houses, man. I, I like built these gardens. I built these parks even, these like monumental big spaces. Like I just tried it all so that I could find meaning in the accomplishment and in the beautiful places to live, and at the end I realized it's just like the wind flowing through. You can't hold on to it. It's just vanity. It's just enigma. It doesn't solve... Anything in life. I, I think he would say, you can be just as unhappy in a mansion as you could in a shack, right? It just leads you back to that same place. Um, Voltaire has this, uh, wrote this book during the Enlightenment called Candide. And, um, and in it, it's, it's this fictional thing, but the, the character Candide is like traveling through on this journey— and he gets himself into this place where um, he finds El Dorado by accident, the, like, legendary city of gold. And so they go into El Dorado, and as they get there, they see the kids are, like, playing with, like, the dirt and the rocks on the ground. And he's like, oh, boy, like, these poor kids don't have toys. They're just playing with the dirt. And he gets closer and looks, and what, they're, what the dirt is, the dirt is made out of gold nuggets um, and gemstones and diamonds and rubies and things like this. And so their kids are sitting here playing in the dirt, and it's gold and gems, And so Candide and his partner are like, oh my goodness. And so they go and they just start scooping it up, right? All the gold, all the gems, like they're just like, oh my goodness, we're going to bring this back. We're going to be crazy rich. And the inhabitants of El Dorado are looking at them like, what is wrong with these guys? What are they doing like gathering up dirt and playing with it, right? And it's like so ridiculous, but I just imagine God looking down at all of us, right? And he sees us in our home improvement projects and he's like, boy, these guys are really freaking out over granite, you know? The stainless steel, like, all the stuff, like, why are they, like, why is this a status thing? Why are we accumulating? Why are we hoarding? Why are we trying to, like, impress each other or look better than somebody else by the way that we're accumulating these things that just belong in the dirt that God just made? And, And it's a good opportunity to kind of step back and say, okay, yes, man, A beautiful home is a a good thing, right? Living your life surrounded by beauty is a good thing. It unlocks something about who we are as humans, and it it allows us to be hospitable and gracious and to flourish as human beings. But again, when you hold that thing up and you say, this good gift that the Lord has given, I'm going to try to make it the thing in my life, the thing that will hold the weight of my happiness, the preacher is saying, it's just going to collapse. It's just going to crumble. And I, we, have, we have a few new homeowners in the church, and I'm sorry to tell you this right now, but you're going to figure it out anyway, so you may as well know. There's a scholar a scholar named um, AJC Verheij that uh, says that uh, he sees comparisons between what Solomon says in these couple verses and Genesis 1 and 2, where the Garden of Eden is described. And his theory is, uh, this preacher, Solomon, is, is trying to recreate the Garden of Eden with all the trees and all the good things and all the parks and all the rivers, like all these beautiful pools and things that were in the garden. Let's recreate that for ourselves. And the problem with that, of course, is, man, wouldn't it be great to be back in the Garden of Eden and enjoying all the good things that God gave to them there? But what made Eden a paradise was not the fact that it was beautiful and had fruit trees and all these things. What made it a paradise is that they were in the presence of the Lord when they were there in the garden. They were there walking with the Lord. And so if you do what Solomon's doing and you're, you're looking under the sun and you're not looking at anything above and you're just seeing it all, you're not gonna find the Garden of Eden anywhere because what made Eden special was the presence of God in that place. And so build, create, invest, like make as big and impressive of a thing as you can. And he's saying it's not going to last. The better homes and gardens approach um, does not work out. Now, on to stage Three. And here's where he searches sex, money, slaving, and rock and roll. And I uh, put the cringy emoji by slaving because I do not recommend this approach, but it's in here. This is what he does. He's like, uh, he says it in verse, what is it? Uh, verse 7. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. So, Cringe, not good. It wasn't race-based like modern slavery, but don't, definitely don't get into trying to own people. Um, it's not good. And he's basically saying, I tried it, and it didn't satisfy. Okay, good. We could have told you that, Solomon.
1: <laughs> then, he said,
0: then he gets into the other ones. Um, I think I made that weird, weirder than it needed to be. Um, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem, and I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delights of the Son of Man. So here, here, I mean, he is just really like cannonballing. Like he's just going all in for this. So definitely try to own people. Nope, that doesn't satisfy. Then he gets into um, this sort of excessive herds and treasures. So like um, he's got the... Um, The herds, the flocks, he's got the silver and gold, the treasures of kings, right? So he's just like, maybe if I accumulate enough stuff, have it all, maybe that is going to be the thing. Like, wealthy has got to be better than being poor, so maybe I'll find some happiness in getting rich. And of course, we know that doesn't satisfy um, consumerism is this massive thing, a massive way that we try to find meaning in life. Like, I'm going to go shopping. I'm going to go accumulate. I'm going to get more stuff. We're actually going to talk about that in a, in a future quest. This is a, the second quest, the, the, the path for wisdom that he takes. I think around the fourth quest, we're going to get into him trying to accumulate. So we'll talk about it there. But the point is, in the meantime, accumulating, it's not going to work. It doesn't give us happiness. It doesn't work out. Um, to quote the, the philosopher Biggie Smalls, "More money, mo' problems, okay? And so that's just how it works out. Is, uh, I, didn't, I didn't put Biggie Smalls on my Ecclesiastes playlist, but he belongs there. I just I couldn't um, do it in good conscience. I can't play it in the worship center. You know what I'm saying? You get the Rolling Stones and Pink Floyd instead. Then he tries the path of music, okay? So he gets um, singers, men and women, right? And so he's like, let's get, let's get music in this place. Let's find meaning in music. And I'll just say, I resonate with this one. So as someone who's like written a book on music, I believe there is a beautiful place for music. I believe it's a gift from God. I believe it's this like amazing thing that really does help us tap into the meaning of life and connection to each other, all of this. But if you try to hold it up, again, it's not strong enough to carry the weight of everything, uh, years, years ago, Laura and I went to a uh, a Wilco concert down at the Hollywood Bowl, and Wilco's one of my favorite bands, and they have this line in a song um, that says, music is my savior. Um, it's a beautiful song, it's a chill song, but as they're sitting there singing this um, in concert, music is my savior, the entire place, man, this whole massive like Hollywood Bowl just erupts in, in like cheers of like, yes, music is my savior, they all resonate with that line. But here is the preacher just saying like, yeah, yeah, music is good. I tried it, but it does not end the search for meaning and fulfillment in life. It still leaves us with this enigma of nothing works out the way that we want. And we can see that. Same thing with the comedians, right? The comedians come to the end of it and they're like, this doesn't satisfy. I mean, how many musicians have we seen burn out and go down the, the path of suicide or, or self-destruction or whatever, right? It, it does not satisfy in the way that you think that it might. Finally, he tries the path of many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So if you're reading this, many concubines, you might think like, man, he was kind of a ladies' man. But if you know, this is, this is either Solomon or someone kind of putting themselves in Solomon's seat. Solomon had like 300 wives, 700 concubines, right? So like he went all in on this whole thing, okay? And so he tried it. If anyone has ever tried to, to wring every bit of meaning out of, um, out of sexual gratification, it was Solomon. And here he's saying like, yeah, I, I, I tried it all, and boy, like it did not satisfy like I want it to. And and I know that's like excessive. So maybe you're like, yeah, maybe maybe there like some meaning in in sex if you're not going like a thousand people, like maybe less. But I'll just say like, the point is he's getting is like extreme. Let's go all in on this. Let's go extreme again. Sex is a good gift from God, right? But but not when it's trying to carry the ultimate thing. And I'll say too like this abundance of sexual partners, like it sounds really intense and even laughable, but when you step back from there and you think of our modern world and you think of the widespread nature of pornography in our culture, right? Statistically, there's a whole lot of pornography being viewed by people in this room. Like that's just the reality. And so if you think of um, how many partners rack up that way through, through pornography, right? It's like we are trying this, right? We're, we go in all in on alcohol. We go all in on consumerism. We do go all in on this, whether you feel like you do or not. Like, and he's just saying, try it. It does not fulfill. This is not going to be the thing that gives you happiness. This is not going to be the thing that leads, leads you to the blessed life. And so, again, all that comes down um, to this conclusion now in verse 9. He says, so I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I mean, can you imagine being able to say that? Like, anything that I wanted, I just took it, right? I just gave myself over to everything. And he says, I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." So after all of that he 's like i just didn 't hold back he went full sin right, but it didn 't satisfy him. he was just all in on this thing, and he 's like it didn 't I looked at everything that I had expended, I looked at everything I had accomplished, and everything my hands did in that pursuit of pleasure like None of it was satisfying. It was all vanity. It was all hevel. It was all um, an enigma and, and meaningless ultimately and not satisfying. And he says it was, it was a striving after the wind. It was like trying to catch hold and grasp hold of the wind. You literally can't do it. You can try, but it does not matter. It does not help. It does not satisfy. And, and this is the preacher. No one has ever spent as much. No, no one has ever invested as much, right? He had every resource and he went all in and he's saying, I didn't find it. This week I, I um, came across a, interview with Tom Brady in 2005. So the man had won, like amazingly, had won three Super Bowl rings, okay? And so he's on 60 minutes, and like they're interviewing him after his third Super Bowl ring, um, a vict- Super Bowl victory. He's got his three rings, and, and they're saying like, hey, which, which uh, Super Bowl ring is your fav- favorite, Tom Brady? And Tom Brady's like, my next one is my favorite one, you know? And uh, which is cocky, but you know, he actually then backed it up a few more times after that. Um he says though in this interview he says why do i have 3 super bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me maybe a lot of people would say hey man this is what it is i reached my goal my dream and he says me i think god there's got to be more than this isn't that interesting? Like, for a man at the pinnacle like that to say that, right? And, and then uh, the interviewer asked him, well, what's the answer? And he says, I wish I knew. And you can just see him kind of perplexed and kind of, like, empty, right? So so now uh, he's got seven Super Bowl rings, okay, which is kind of insane, right? And, and probably, like, another seven or so to go, it seems like, maybe? I don't know. And, uh, but, like, did one of those other four uh, satisfy him or is he still in the same spot of like, I wish I knew. There's something more than just winning Super Bowl wings. It's these people that we look at that we feel like, man, if I could only live like they live, you know? If I could only live with the resources uh, of, a, of a NFL Super Bowl winning quarterback, like then I could find meaning in life. But here's Solomon at the peak of it all and just saying like, no, you can't. You can try it all. You can go all in. You can have every bit of resource to do the things that you think are gonna make you happy and they won't. C.S. Lewis um, has this beautiful thing where he talks about how um, with God, like there's this echo, there's this echo. All of our pleasures in life are like this echo of the good thing we find in God. So he's talking about how when we feel a a desire, an urge, a like longing, then, then in this physical world, we find a answer to that. So here's how he says it. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. and on the other, never to mistake them for something else, for, for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. See, it's this beautiful reminder, and C.S. Lewis always has a way of putting things, of our desires are, are good, right? Like, they're, they're, they're great things. Like, we food is amazing. Um, uh, wine is amazing. Like, like, All these things he lists, except for slavery, is amazing, right? And so all those things that he tries, it's like, okay, yeah, there's something there, right? There's something that satisfies in that. Um, But as he goes, it's like, no, uh, uh, C.S. Lewis is saying, reminding him, no, no, these things are meant to point you to something else. And you have this overflowing, overarching thing in your life that will never be satisfied with all these things until you find that they have their place in God. C.S. Lewis said, this is all from mere Christianity. He said earlier in the book, a car is made to run on petrol very british way of saying it it would not run properly on anything else now god designed the human machine to run on himself and that is why it is just no good asking god to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion god cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there there is no such thing Man, such a good reminder. This is where satisfaction is found. And so the, the preacher is doing us this favor of taking these quests, of trying these things, of exploring and saying, maybe there's something in this. And he gets to the end and just reminds us, like, hey, it's not there. You can't find it there. And so rather than leaving you with Solomon's depressing conclusion in this section, he ends the book hopeful, but uh, it's going to be a little while until we finish the whole book. So I'm going to give you a glimpse now from Jesus. Jesus, in John chapter 4, going to this woman at the well, and he asked her to draw water from the well, and, um, and she's you know they get into this conversation. Jesus says to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water, water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will, be, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, this is the reminder that we need. And this is where Solomon is ultimately pointing, right? Like, sure, drink water. It's going to satisfy you. It's going to taste great. It's going to be amazing. But then you're going to get thirsty again later. And if you want water to do every like, none of these earthly pleasures will hold the weight of your entire happiness in your pursuit for meaning in life. None of them will but what does? Jesus is saying, man, there is this living water that I give you. There's this life that only I have that I can offer to you, and if you get that, then it puts everything else into its place. You can enjoy alcohol and sex and uh, money and your home and all these kinds of things. You can enjoy all of them if they're in proper relation to God. It's a beautiful reminder and an invitation for us, man, to just step back into that mode and say, okay, that's right. So, so I feel like uh, this is where I want to end us this morning. I feel like... Um, I feel like I have told you nothing that you, if we had done a survey at the beginning of the sermon, it said, what do you guys think? Is, 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 uh, Lasting pleasure found in alcohol, yes or no? Uh, Is it found in sex, yes or no? Is it found in improving your home, yes or no? We all would have gotten 100% on that quiz, I guarantee it, right? No trick questions, you guys would have gotten it. There's nothing that I've said, there's nothing that the preacher said that we're like, huh, interesting, so having a thousand wives doesn't really work out that great. Like, like no, none of it, like, we all know what he's saying. And, And there's different issues and different levels at which we agree, but this is what I want to do, is invite us to just kind of reflect for a minute on like what we're actually doing here, okay? Because we're here and we wanna hear this amazing, powerful truth of God, but we tend to sort of in our, in our modern busyness and in kind of the, the apathy of our hearts, like we wanna hear it, but we wanna kind of let it slide past, right? We wanna hear these words and we wanna kind of believe it or agree with it, but we don't wanna let it like change us. And so what I wanna invite you to do is as we end is to let the words that the preacher just said to us, let those sink in. Okay, let those things sink in. Okay, and so you agree with me that, that life is not found in just laughter and being foolish, right? But do you actually believe that? And, and do you, are you really looking for your hope and fulfillment and happiness in those things? It's like, is it possible that you're leaning too much on that? It, do you believe that like alcohol is not going to be the thing that gets you through life and makes you happy and lets you survive another day? Do you believe that? Or, or do you like let that sink in? Like, are you kind of trying that approach and you, you need that reminder of like, you know what? Yes, God's good gift, but it will never satisfy me. And I need to make sure I put it in its proper perspective. Um, do you believe that sex and, and, and all these things, right? Like it's a good gift. It's a gift of God. But especially when we go outside of God's design for it, especially when we're when we're engaged in pornography and like, like. Could we, could we acknowledge the truth of what he's saying, but also let that sink down deeper into our hearts and say, okay, Lord, there's these things that I've been gripping onto that I need to loosen my grip. and I need to be okay saying, Lord, help me to loosen my grip. And of course, like we're gonna walk out of here, it might be five minutes or it might be five days, but we're gonna put our grip back on it again. But let's let this be a moment where we loosen our grip and say, Lord, I've been holding onto these things and thank you for the reminder that it doesn't satisfy ultimately. Lord, would you help me to loosen my grip on these things? And so that's where I want to leave us. As we sing a couple more songs now, um, I want to leave with that invitation to loosen your grip. There's something on this list for everybody. So what was it that is in here that Solomon mentions um, that you need to begin loosening your grip on? And as we sing, I'm going to ask you to sing prayerfully and sing um, reflectively. I want you to process before the Lord what those things is, and I'm going to invite you like into kind of a prayer space if you want. And so if you want to like come up here and kneel, you can certainly do that. You can pray where you're at. Um, over on the side here in our prayer corner, I have a little table set up, and there's little note cards on it. And um, I'm, not, I'm not trying to get you to spill all the tea or anything like that, but what I, um, what I want you to um, consider is maybe while we're singing this, you're like, um, you're like, I, I have a thing that I need to let like, go of, okay? And, and what I'd like you to do, if that if that's you and if you're prompted and that's like what you wanna do, come just even write your name on the card. Like it could be your first name only, it could be your whole name and just write your name on the card. That will tell me there's something you're clinging onto too tightly that you're ready to let like, go of. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pray with the elders and the pastoral staff this week um, for those of you that write your name on the card. If you wanna just leave it at your name, that's great. If you wanna like write down thing on there or anything on the card you can there's a little basket in there to put it in but I just encourage you two songs so pray reflect worship but if God's kind of prompting prompting you like let go of that thing and take a little more intense step than just telling me um, then just make your way around here over to the corner it's nice and dark and private over there um, write your name on the card, put it in there. Um, you will be prayed for this week. I promise you that. And then um, myself and a few of the elders and, and pastoral staff, we're going to be um, over on the side here. If you want someone to actually pray with you, um, you're welcome to come do that as well. Um, but but, anyways, this is about your time with the Lord and and just loosening your grip on whatever that thing is. So let me pray for us as we get ready to do all that. Lord, thank you for these reminders. Lord, these reminders that are so old and I... It's crazy, Lord, that this is thousands of years old, and yet it still is so relatable. It still speaks exactly to where I am and where so many of us are. And Lord, our journeys are bizarre, and they're winding, and they're um, so many starts and stops. But I just pray, Lord, for this moment right now, that with our hearts before you, that that when, when this preacher says, I tried this, I tried that, I tried that, and I didn't find any hope or life or fulfillment in it, I'm still just as confused as before. Lord, would we believe what he says to us? I think that our hearts know deep down that that's where we're at. And Lord, would we, would we look to you, would we loosen our grips before you and would we look to you and see, Lord, you offer the living water. You are the one that satisfies. Thank you for these good gifts that you've given us, Lord. May we enjoy them in your presence and in proper relation to you. Lord, lead us in the path of life. And, and Lord, I'm just struck by how so often your good gifts, we cling to them so tightly that they just pull us down deeper. Lord, may we find that life ultimately in you. Would you bring us into new life? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.